Welcome back, Heming Brainiacs, part 8, chapter 4. Having some serious buyer's remorse and then diving into an ill-advised quote-unquote investment. Yikes. Swim said the mum of fish, he says, I believe this is the first time that we have been privy into the characters, Thomas's, inner for- thoughts. A refreshing change in the book's literary style thus far. Thomas is losing his grip. He's become parsimonious, unconfident and reckless. Hmm. Reckless. Hasty. Desperate, you could say. I love how he wandered around his house just thinking about how dumb it was to buy all these big rooms and um, convinced himself, you know, to make that this was a good business decision. Tekrovic says the operative word here is unethical. His conscience tells him that this is wrong. This move is not the one he should be making. He contemplates what the previous generation of heads of the family would have done. Yeah. Um, would they have bought the entire pop and raid harvest? That made no difference, no difference at all, but that they had been practical men, stronger, more open to life, more natural, whole, full men, that much was certain. The tragedy here is that he's wrong. His father, his grandfather, and his great-grandfather all faced similar moments and all failed this test. All these seemingly small, sometimes insignificant decisions made because they were the easy way was rationalised by the Buttonbrook men as a means to an end. The end being keeping the firm afloat. Protecting the firm is seen as protecting the family. The line between the two isn't even blurred. There is no line. This is the problem and the tragedy for all the individuals involved. They're reduced to cogs in the machinery of the firm. <coughs> Excuse me. Jan Brunt says, I didn't make it in time yesterday to comment, so I'll toss it in here. Ida Jungman is the heart of this family. She's practical, but still sentimental, industrious, while others are indolent, never gives self-serving advice, plays with and cares for the children more than their parents ever do, and is a caring companion for all f- old Frau Buttonbrooks. I shudder to think what sad husks they'd all be without Ida around. Yep. Um, now, Stavy Bone says, does anyone know how far into the book we are? Swims to the Mama Fishy says there's 22 chapters left. Is that all? They must be long chapters. I feel like it must get longer and longer because by my indications, we're only two-thirds of the way through the book. If that. So, is it that the chapters get extremely long? That could be a bother to me. I noticed that tonight's chapter is really long. It's 14 pages, which is quite irksome when I'm feeling so horrible. I'm still feeling sick, by the way. Oh, yeah, I forgot to say yesterday, I did do a COVID test and it was negative, so it's not COVID. Um, Just a regular cold, which is going around at the moment, just to make things even better. Alright, seeing as it's so long, I'm going to scoot along and read you the chapter. Chapter 5. Was it forgetfulness or was it intention, which would have made Senator Buddenbrook pass over in silence a certain fact, had not his sister Tony, the devotee of the family papers, announced it to all the world, the fact, namely, that in those documents the founding of the firm of Johann Buddenbrook was ascribed to the date of the 7th of July, 1768, the hundredth anniversary of which was now at hand. Thomas seemed almost disturbed when Tony, in a moving voice, called his attention to the fact. 
His good mood had not lasted. All too soon he had fallen silent again, more silent than before. He would leave the office in the midst of work, seized with unrest, and roam about the garden, sometimes pausing as if he felt confined in his movements, sighing and covering his eyes with his hand. He said nothing, gave his feelings no vent to whom should he speak. Then, when he told his partner of the pop and raid matter, her Marcus had for the first time in his life been angry with him and had washed his hands of the whole affair, but Thomas betrayed himself to his sister Tony when they said goodbye on the street one Thursday evening and she alluded to the pop and raid harvest. He gave her hand a single quick squeeze and added passionately, Oh Tony, if I had only sold it already. He broke off abruptly and they parted, leaving Frau Permanita dismayed and anxious. The sudden hand pressure had something despairing. The low words betrayed pent-up feeling. But when Tony, as chance offered, tried to come back to the subject, he wrapped himself in silence. The more forbidding because of his inward mortification over having given way, his inward bitterness, at being, as he felt, feeble and inadequate to the situation in hand. He said now slowly and fretfully, Oh, my dear child, I wish we might ignore the whole affair. Ignore it, Tom. Impossible. Unthinkable. Do you think you could suppress the fact? Do you imagine the whole town would forget the meaning of the day? I don't say it is impossible. I only say I wish it were. It is pleasant to celebrate the past when one is gratified with the present and the future. It is agreeable to think of one's forefathers when one feels at one with them and are conscious of having acted as they would have done. If the Jubilee came at a better time, but just now I feel small inclination to celebrate it. You must not talk like that. Tom, you don't mean it. You know perfectly well that it would be a shame to let the hundredth anniversary of the firm of Johann Budenbrock go by without a sign or a sound of rejoicing. You are a little nervous now, and I know why, though there is really no reason for it, but when the day comes, you will be as moved as the, all the rest of us. She was right. The day could not be passed over in silence. It was not long before a notice appeared in the papers, calling attention to the coming anniversary and giving a detailed history of the old and estimable firm. But it was really hardly necessary. In the family, Justus Kroger was the first to mention the approaching event, on the Thursday afternoon, and Frau Permanita saw to it that the venerable leather portfolio was solemnly brought out after dessert was cleared away, and the whole family, by way of foretaste, perused the dates and events in the life of the first Johann Buddenbrook, Hanno's great-great-grandfather, when he had varaloid, and when genuine smallpox, when he fell out of the third-story window on the th to the th the floor of the drying house, and when he had fever and delirium, she read all that aloud with pious favour. Not content with that, she must go back into the 16th century to the oldest Buddenbrook, of whom there was knowledge, to the one who was a counsellor in Grabau, and the Rostock tailor who had been very well off and had so many children living and dead. What a splendid man, she cried, and began to rummage through yellow papers and read letters and poems aloud. On the morning of the 7th of July, Herr Wenzel was naturally the first with his congratulations. Well, Herr Senator, 
Many happy returns, he said, gesturing freely with razor and strop in his red hands. A hundred years. At nearly half of it, I may say, I have been shaving in the respected family. Oh, yes, one goes through a deal with the family. When one sees the head of it, the first thing in the morning, the deceased her consul was always the most talkative in the morning, too. Wenzel, he would ask me, Wenzel, what do you think about the rye? Should I sell, or do you think it will go up again? Yes, Wenzel, and I cannot think of these years without you either. Your calling, as I have often said to you, has a certain charm about it. When you have made your rounds, you are wiser than anybody. You have had the heads of nearly all the great houses under your hand, and know the mood of each one. All the others can envy you that, for it is really valuable information. Valuable piece of information. There's a good bit of truth in that, her senator, but what about her senator's own mood, if I may be so bold to ask? Her senator's looking a trifle pale again this morning. Am I? Well, I have a headache, so far as I can tell, see. It does get worse before it gets better, for I suspect they'll put a good deal of strain on it today. I'm afraid so, her senator. The interest is great. The interest is very great. Just look out the window when I've done with you. Hosts of flags, and down the bottom of the street, the Welland Wearer and the Friedrich Overdeek, all this pendants flying. Well, let's... Be quick then, Wenzel, there's no time to lose, evidently. The senator did not don his office jacket, as he usually did of a morning, but he put at once a black coat away, coat with a white waistcoat and light-coloured trousers. There would certainly be visits. He gave a last glance in the mirror, a last pressure of the tongs to his moustache, and turned with a little sigh to go. The dance was beginning, if only the day were well over. Would he have a single minute to himself, a single minute to relax the muscles of his face? All day long he should certainly have to receive, with tact and dignity and congratulations of hosts of people, Find just the right word and just the right tone for everybody. Be serious, hearty, ironic, jocose and respectful by turns, and from afternoon late into the night there would be dinner at the Red Scala. It was not true that his head ached, he was only tired, although, already though he had just risen with his nerves refreshed by sleep, he felt his old indefinable burden upon him. Why had he said his head ached, as though he always had a bad conscience where his own health was concerned? Why, why? However, there was no time now to brood over the question. He went, he just asked the question three times. Four times. And now there's no time to... Okay. He went into the dining room where Gerda met him gaily. She, too, was already arrayed to meet their guests in a plaid skirt, a white blouse, and a thin silk zoove jacket over it. The colour of her heavy hair, she smiled and showed her white teeth, so large and regular, whiter than her white face. Her eyes, those close-set enigmatic brown eyes, were smiling too today. I've been up for hours, you can tell from that how excited I am, she said, and how hearty my congratulations are. Well, well, so the hundredth years makes our impression on you two tremendous, but perhaps it is only the excitement of the celebration. What a day, look at that, for instance. She pointed at the breakfast table, all garlanded with garden flowers. That is Fraley Newman's work, but you are mistaken if you think you can drink tea now. The family is in the drawing room already, waiting to make the presentation, something in which I too have had a share. Listen, Thomas, this is, of course, only the beginning of a stream of callers. <coughs> Excuse me. At first I can stand it, but at about midday I shall have to withdraw, I'm sure. The barometer has fallen a little, but the sky is still the most staring blue. It makes the flags look lovely, of course, and the whole town is flagged, but it will be frightfully hot. Come into the salon. Breakfast must wait. You should have been up before. Now the first excitement will have to come on an empty stomach. The Frau Consul Christian Clotilde Ida Yulman, Frau Pimata and Hannah were assembled in the salon. The last two supported, not without difficulty, the family present. 
a great commemorative tablet. The Frau Consul deeply moved and embraced her eldest born. This is a wonderful day, my dear son, a wonderful day. She repeated, we must have thanked God unceasingly with all our hearts for his mercies, for all his mercies, she wept. The senator was attacked by weakness in her embrace. He felt as though something within him freed itself and flew away. His lips trembled and overwhelming need possessed him to lay his head upon her mother's breast, to close his eyes in her arms, to breathe into the delicate perfume that rose from the soft silk of her gown, to lie there at rest, seeing nothing more, saying nothing more. He kissed her and stood erect, putting out his hand to his brother, who greeted him with the absent-minded embarrassment which was his usual bearing on such occasions. Clothilda drawled out something kindly. Ida Yulman confined herself to making a deep bow, while she played with the silver watch chain on her fat, flat bosom. Come here, Tom, said Frau Pimenter uncertainly. We can't hold it any longer, can we, Hanno? She was almost, she was holding it almost alone, for Hanno's little arms were not much help, and she looked with what with her enthusiasm and her effort like an un, enraptured martyr. Her eyes were moist, her cheeks burned, and her tongue played with a mixture of mischief and nervousness on her upper lip. Here I am, said the senator. What in the world is this? Come, let me have it. We'll lean it against the wall. He propped it up next to the piano and stood looking at it, surrounded by the family, in a large heavy frame of carved nut wood, were the portraits of the four owners of the firm under glass. There was the founder, Johann Buddenbrook, taken from an old oil painting, a tall, grave old gentleman with his lips firmly closed, looking severe and determined about his lace jabot. There was the broad and jovial countenance of Johann Buddenbrook and the friend of Jan Jacques Hofstede. There was Consul Johann Buddenbrook in a stiff choker collar with his wide, wrinkled mouth and large, aquiline nose, his eyes full of religious fervor, and finally there was Thomas Buddenbrook himself as a somewhat younger man. The four portraits were divided by conventional blades of wheat, heavily gilded and beneath, likewise in figures of brilliant gilt the date 1768 to 1868. Above the hole in the tall Gothic hand of whom him who had left it to his descendants was the quotation, My son, attend with zeal to thy business by day, but do none that hinders thee from thy sleep at night. The senator his hands behind his back gazed for a long time at the tablet. Yes, yes, he said abruptly, and his tone was rather mocking. An undisturbed night's rest is a very good thing. Then seriously, if perhaps a little perfunctorily, thank you very much, my dear family. It is indeed a most thoughtful and beautiful gift. What do you think? Where shall we put it? Shall we hang it in my private office? Yes, Tom. Over... The desk in your office, answered Frau Pimenter and embraced her brother. Then she drew him into a bow widow window and pointed. Under a deep blue sky, the two-coloured flag floated above all the houses, right down Fisher's Lane from Broad Street to the wharf, where the Wallen Wallen and the Friedrich Overdrick lay up under the full flag in their owner's honour. The whole town is the same, said Frau Pimenter, and her voice trembled. I've been out and about already. Even the Hagenstroms have a flag. They couldn't do otherwise. I'd smash in their window. He smiled, and they went back to the table together. And here... Are the telegrams, Tom, the first ones to come, the personal ones, of course. The others have been sent to the office. They opened a few of the dispatches from the family in Hamburg, from the Frankfurt Buttonbrooks, from her Arnolston in Amsterdam, from Jürgen Kroger in Wiesmar. Suddenly, Frau Pimenta flushed deeply. He is a good man in his way, he she said, and pushed across to her brother a telegram she had just opened. It was signed Pimenta. But time is passing, said the senator, and looked at his watch. I'd like my tea. Will you come in with me? The house will be like a beehive after a while. His wife, who had given a sign to Ida Yulman, held him back. Just a moment, Thomas. You know Hanno has to go to his lessons. 
He wants to say a poem to you first. Come here, Hanno. And now, just as if no one else were here, you remember. Don't be excited. It was the summer holidays, of course, but little Hanno had private lessons in arithmetic in order to get keep up with his class. Somewhere out in the suburb of St. Gertrude, in a little ill-smelling room, a man in a red beard with dirty fingernails was waiting to discipline him in the detested tables, but first he was to recite to Papa a poem painfully learned by heart with Artie Ullman's help in the little balcony on the second floor. He leaned against the piano in a blue sailor suit with a wide V front and a wide linen collar with a big sailor's knot coming out beneath. This chapter is so full of description. What book is this? This is a different book. We're reading a different book. It's just, it's, it's 14 pages long and 13 of the pages are just pointless descriptions. Drive me nuts. His thin legs were, sorry about that. His thin legs were crossed, his body and head a little too inclined in an attitude of shy unconscious grace two or three weeks before his hair had been cut as not only his fellow pupils but the master as well had laughed at it but his head was still covered with soft and abundant ringlets growing down over the forehead and temples. His eyelids drooped so that the long brown lashes lay over deep blue shadows. Explanation, description, description, description. And his eyes and his closed lips were a little wry. Who cares what his closed lips were a little? He knew well what would happen. He would begin to cry, would not be able to finish for crying, and his heart would contract as it did on Sundays in St. Mary's when her fool played an organ in a certain piercingly solemn way. (coughs) It always turned out that he wept when they wanted him to do something, when they examined him and tried to find out what he knew, as Papa so loved to do, if only Mama had not spoken of getting excited. She meant to be encouraging, but he felt it was a mistake. There they stood and looked at him. They expected and feared that he would break down, so how was it possible not to? He lifted his lashes and sought Ida's eyes. She was playing with her watch chain and nodded to him in her usual honest, crabbed way. (coughs) He would have liked to cling to her and have her take him away. To hear nothing but her low, soothing voice saying, There, little Hanno, be quiet, you need not say it. Well, my son, let us hear it, said the senator shortly. He had sat down in an easy chair by the table and was waiting. He did not smile. He seldom did on such occasions. Very serious, with one eyebrow lifted, measured little Hanno with cold and scrutinizing glance. Hanno straightened up, rubbed one hand over his piano's polished surface, gave a shy look at the company and, somewhat emboldened by the gentle looks of Grandmama and Aunt Tony, brought out in a low, almost a hard voice, the Shepherd's Sunday Hymn by Erland. Oh, my dear child, not like that, called out the senator. Don't stick there by the piano and cross your hands on your tummy like that. Stand up, speak out. That's the first thing. Here, stand here between the curtains. Now, hold your head up. Let your arms hang down quietly on your sides. Hanno took up his position on the threshold of the living room and let his arms hang down. Obediently, he raised his head, but his eyes, the lashes drooped so low that they were invisible. They were probably already swimming in tears. This is the day of our... He began very low. His father's voice sounded loud by contrast when he interrupted. One begins with a bow, my son, and then much louder. Begin again, please. Shepherd's Sunday hymn. It was cruel. The senator was probably aware that he was robbing the child of the last remnant of his self-control, but the boy should not let himself be robbed. He should have more manliness by now. Shepherd's Sunday hymn, he repeated encouragingly, remorselessly, but it was all up with Hanno. He, his head sank on his breast and the small blue-veined right hand tugged spasmodically at the brocaded portier. I stand alone on the vacant plain, he said, but could go no further. The mood of the verse possessed him, and overmastering self-pity took away his voice and the tears could not be kept back. They rolled out from beneath his lashes. Suddenly they, the thought 
came into his mind, if he were only ill, a little ill as those nights when he lay in bed with a silent fever and sore throat, and Ida came and gave him a drink and put a compress on his head and was kind, he put his head down on the arm with which he clung to the portier and sobbed. Well, said the senator harshly, there is no pleasure in that. He stood up, irritated. What are you crying about? Though it is certainly a good enough reason for tears that you haven't the courage to do anything, even for the sake of giving me a little pleasure. Are you a little girl? What will become of you if you go on like that? Will you always be drowning yourself in tears every time you speak to people? I never will speak to people, never, thought Hanno, in despair. Think it over this afternoon, finished the senator, and went into the dining room. Ida Jungman knelt by her fledgling and dried his eyes and spoke to him, half consoling, half reproachful. The senator breakfasted hurriedly, and the Frau Consul, Tony Clothilde and Christian, meanwhile, took their leave. They were to dine with Goethe, as likewise were the Krogers and the Wishinks and the Three Misers. Mrs. Boddenbrook from Broad Street, while the senator willy-nilly must be present at the dinner in the Ratskeller. He hoped to leave in time to see his family again in his own house. Sitting at the begarlanded table, he drank his hot tea out of a saucer, hurriedly ate an egg, and on the steps took two or three puffs of a cigarette. You can... Does anyone care that he ate an egg? Like, why why did I have to use my life to learn that a character ate an egg. Did they not have editors in the 1800s? Grobloblin, wearing his woolen scarf in defiance of the July heat, with a boot over his left forearm and the polished brush in his right, a long drop pendant for his nose, came from the garden into the front entry and accosted his master at the foot of the stairs where the brown bear stood with his tray. Many happy returns to her senator, many happy... And one is rich and great, and another's poor. Yes, yes, Grobloban, you're right, that's just how it is. And the senator slipped a piece of money into the hand of the brush, and crossed the entry into the anteroom of the office. In the office, the cashier came up to him, a tall man with honest, faithful eyes, to convey in carefully selected phrases the good wishes of the staff. (coughs) The senator thanked him in a few words and went on to his place by the window. He had hardly opened his letters and glanced into the morning paper lying there ready for him when a knock came on the door leading into the front entry and the first visitors appeared with their congratulations. It was the delegation of granary labourers who came straddling in like bears the corners of the mouse drawn back with befitting solemnity in their caps in their hands. Their spokesman spat tobacco juice on the floor, pulled up his trousers and talked in great excitement about a hundred year and many more hundred year. The senator proposed to them a considerable increase in their pay for the week and dismissed them. The office staff of the revenue department came in a body to congratulate the chief. As they left, they met in the doorway a number of sailors with two pilots at the head from the Wollenwauer and the Friedrich Overdeck and the two ships belonging to the firm, which happened at the time to be in port. Then there was a deputation of grain porters in black blouses, knee breeches and top hats, and single citizens too were announced from time to time. Her Sturt from Bellfounder Street came with a black coat over his flannel shirt, and Iwerson, the florist, and sundry other neighbours. There was an old postman with watery eyes, earrings, and a white beard, and ancient oddity whom the senator used to salute on the street and call him her postmaster. He came, stood in the doorway, and cried out, Ah, Baint came for that, her senator. Ah, knows is everybody gets some at as comes here today, but our baint come for that, and uh, so tells ye. He received his piece of money with gratitude nonetheless. There was simply no end to it. The half At half past ten, the servant came from the house to announce that the Frau Senator was receiving guests in the salon. 
that Thomas Buddenbrook, Thomas Buddenbrook left his office and hurried upstairs at the door of the salon. He paused a moment for a glance into the mirror and order his cravat and to refresh himself with a whiff of the eau de cologne on his handkerchief. His body was wet with perspiration, but his face was pale, his hands and feet cold. The reception in the office had nearly used him up already. He drew a long breath and entered the sunlit room to be greeted at once by Consul Honius, the lumber dealer and multimillionaire, his wife, their daughter, and the latter's husband, Senator Giuseppe, Dr. Giuseppe. <clears throat> These had all driven in from Travamondi, like many others of the first families of the town who were spending July in a cure, which they interrupted only for the Buttonbrook Jubilee. <coughs> they had not been sitting for three minutes in the elegant armchairs of the salon when Consul Overdiek's son of the Zirkos de- deceased Burgomaster and his wife, who was a Kirsten marker, were announced. When Consul Hannes made his adieu, his place was taken by his brother, who had millions less money than he, but made up for it by being a senator. Now the ball was open. The tall white door with the relief of the singing cupids above it was scarcely closed for a moment. There was a constant view from within from the great staircase upon which the light streamed down from the skylight far above and the stairs themselves full of guests either entering or taking their leave. But the salon was spacious. The guests lingering in groups to talk and the number of those who came was for some time far greater than the number of those who went away. Soon the maid servant gave up opening and shutting the door that led into the salon and left it wide open so that the guests stood in the corridor as well. There was a drone of buzz, a conversation in masculine and feminine voices. There was handshakings, bows, jests, loud jolly laughter which reverberated among the columns of the staircase and echoed from the great glass planes, panes of the skylight. Masculine and feminine voices. Fucking hell. Senator Buttonbrook stood by turns at the top of the stairs and in the bow window receiving the congratulations which were sometimes mere formal murmurs and sometimes loud and hearty expressions of goodwill. Burgomaster Dr. Langell was a heavily built man of elegant appearance with a shaven chin nestling in a white neck cloth. Short grey mutton chops and a languid diplomatic air was received with general marks of respect. Consul Edward Kistenmarker, the wine merchant, his wife, who was a Mellendorf, and his brother and partner, Stephen, Senator Buttonbrook's loyal friend and supporter, and his wife and a really healthy daughter of a land proprietor, arrived and paid their respects. The widow, Frau Senator Mollendorf's sister, friend in the centre of the sofa in the salon, while the children, Consul August Mollendorf and his wife, Glotch and Born, with Hagenstrom, middle of the crowd, Consul Herman Hagenstrom supports his considerable weight on the balustrade, breathes heavily into the red beard, and talks to Senator Dr. Kramer, in chief of the police, whose brown beard, mixed with grey frames, a smiling face, expression of a sort of gentle slyness, of state attorney Moritz Hagenstrom, smiling and showing his defective teeth. Is there with the beautiful wife, the former Fraulein Putterberg, her good old Dr. Grabau, may be seen pressing Senator Buttonbrook's hand for a moment in both of his hands. And to be displaced next moment by contractor Voigt, Pastor Pringsheim in a secular grub, only betraying his dignity by the length of his frock coat, comes up and steps with outstretched arms and beaming face, and her, Friedrich Wilhelm Marcus, is present, of course, those gentlemen who come as delegates from anybody, such as the Senate, the Board of Trade, the Assembly of Burgesses, appear in the frock coats. It is half past eleven. The heat is intense. The lady of the house withdrew a quarter of an hour ago. That was a page of names. I will never care about a page of names. Suddenly there is a hubbub below the vestibule door, a stamping and shuffling of feet as many people entering together and the ringing voices echoes through the whole house. Everybody rushes to the landing blocks, up the doors of the salon, the dining room, the smoking room and peers down. Below is a group of 15 or 20 men with musical instruments headed by a gentleman in a brown wig with a grey nautical beard and a yellow artificial teeth. 
which he shows when he walks. What is happening? It is Consul Peter Dolman, of course. He is bringing the band from the theatre and mounts the stairs in triumph, swinging a packet of programmes in his hands. The serenade in honour of the 100th anniversary of the firm of Johan Buddenbrook begins in these impossible conditions, with the notes all running together, the chords drowning each other, the, the loud grunting and snarling of the big bass trumpet heard above everything else. It begins with, Now let us all thank God, goes over into the adaptation of Offbach's La Belle Helena, and winds up with the potpourri of folk songs, quite an extensive program, and a pretty idea of Dolman's. They congratulate him on it, and nobody feels inclined to break up until the concert is finished. They stand or sit in the salon in the corridor, they listen and talk. Thomas Bottenbrook stood with Stephen Kiston, Marcus, Senator Dr. Jacecki, and Contractor Voigt beyond the staircase, near the open door of the smoking room and the flight of stairs up to the second story. He leaned against the wall now and then contributing a word to the conversation and for the rest, looking out into space across the balustrade. (coughs) Excuse me. It was hotter than ever and more oppressive, but it would probably rain. To judge from the shadows that drove across the skylight, there must be clouds in the sky. There were so many and moved so rapidly that the changeful flickering light in the staircase came in time to hurt the eyes. Every other minute the brilliance of the gilt chandelier and the brass instruments below was quenched to blaze out the next minute as before. Once the shadows lasted a little longer and six or seven times, something fell with a slight crackling sound upon the panes of the light skylight, hailstones no doubt. Then the sunlight streamed down again. There is a mood of depression in which everything that would ordinarily irritate us and call up a heavy reaction merely weighs us down with a nameless heavy burden of dull chagrin. Thus Thomas brooded over the breakdown of little Johann, over the feelings which the whole celebration aroused in him and still more over those which he would have liked to feel but could not. He sought again and again to pull himself together to clear his countenance to tell himself that this was a great day which was bound to heighten and exhilarate his mood and indeed the noise which the band was making, the buzz of voices, the sight of all these people gathered in his honour did shake his nerves, did, together with his memories of the past and of his father, give him rise to a sort of weak emotionalism, but a sense of ridiculous, uh, of the disagreeable hung over it all, the trumpet trumpery music spoiled by the band acoustics the banal company chattering about dinners in the stock market and this very mingling of emotion and disgust heightened his inward sense of exhaustion and despair at a quarter after twelve when the musical program was drawing to a close an incident occurred which in wise interfered with the prevailing and good feeling but which obliged the master of the house to leave his guests for a short time it was a business nature At a pause in the music, the youngest apprentice in the firm appeared, coming up to the great staircase, overcome with embarrassment at the sight of so many people. He was a little stunted fellow, and he drew his red face down as far as possible between his shoulders, and swung one long thin arm violently back and forth to show that he was perfectly at ease. In the other hand, he had a telegram. He mounted the steps, looking everywhere for his master, and when he had discovered him, he passed with blushes and murmured excuses through the crowds that blocked his way. His blushes were superfluous, nobody saw him. Without looking at him or breaking off their talk, they slightly made way, and they hardly noticed when he gave his telegram to the senator. With a scrape and a latter turned a little away from Kistenmacher, Voigt and Giuseppe to read it. Nearly all the telegrams that came today were messages of congratulations. Still, during business hours, they had to be delivered at once. The corridor made a bend at the point where the stairs mounted to the second story, and then went on back to the stairs where there was another side entrance into the dining room. Opposite the stairs was the shaft of the dumb waiter, 
And at this point, there was a sizable table where the maids usually polished the silver. The senator paused here, turned his back to the apprentice and opened the dispatch. So he paused next to a table, but that was a paragraph to dis- explain the, the position of the table. He paused next to a table. Jesus Christ. Suddenly his eyes opened so wide that anyone seeing him would have started stared, started in astonishment and he gave a deep gasping intake of breath which dried his throat and made him cough. He tried to say very well but his voice was inaudible and the clamour behind him very well he repeated but the second word was only a whisper. As his master did not move or turn around or make any sign the humpbacked apprentice shifted from one foot to the other then made his outlandish scrape again and went down the back stairs. Senator Butterbrook stood still at the table, his hands holding the dispatch hung weakly down in front of him. He breathed in difficult short breaths through the mouth, his body swayed back and forth, and he shook his head meaninglessly, as if stunned. That little bit of hail, he said. That little bit of hail, he repeated stupidly. But gradually, his breathing grew longer and quieter, the moment, the movement of his body less, his half-shut eyes clouded over with a weary, broken expression, and he turned around slowly, nodding his head, opened the door into the dining room, and went in. With bent head, he tossed, he crossed the wide, polished floor and sat down on one of the dark red sofas by the window. Here it was quiet and cool. The sound of the fountain came up from the garden, and a fly buzzed on the pane. There was only a dull murmur from the front of the house. He laid his weary head on the cushion and closed his eyes. That's good, that's good, he muttered a half aloud, drawing a deep breath of relief and satisfaction. No, that is good. He lay for five minutes thus with limbs relaxed and a look of peace upon his face, and he sat up, folded the telegram, put it in his breast pocket and rose to rejoin his guests. But in the same minute he sank back with a disgusted groan upon the sofa. The music it was beginning again, an idiotic radicate meant to be a gallop, with a drum and cymbals marking a rhythm in which the other instruments all joined, either ahead or of behind time. A naive, insistent, intolerable hullabaloo of snarling, crashing, and feebly piping noises, punctuated by the silly tootling of the piccolo. Alright, there we go, there's that chapter. Looks like the hail may have ruined his crop. And now he's up Shits Creek. And that took like an hour. Freaking hell, that was excruciating. It might just be because I'm very sick and the last thing I wanted to do is spend like this long reading a chapter. Anywho, thanks for listening nonetheless. See you tomorrow.